She speaks Chinese, has earned a degree from Harvard, has won an Academy Award, and has helped start a transformative movement to protect women. She is elegant, charming, strong, and most definitely brilliant. Today we have Mira Savino for the entire hour. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Watching America All my life It's panic in America Oh, 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 oh It's trouble in America From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. You know her from such works as Quiz Show, Mighty Aphrodite, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, The Replacement Killers, Summer of Sam, Norma Jean and Marilyn, Human Trafficking, Modern Family, and Condor. But Mira Solvino is far more than the sum of her roles. You see, my actual personality is not necessarily like most of the characters I've played. I don't know if I've ever really played the full me on camera. I feel like I'm, I'm like a piano inside myself and I play different keys for different parts. But I started being playing, you know, the high black keys. It is no exaggeration to say that Mira Savino is one of my most favorite guests, even though I haven't interviewed her yet. Um, certainly, I am thrilled to have her with us. Her most recent work is Ryan Murphy's new limited, if you will, and we say limited series, meaning seven episodes on Netflix called Hollywood. It's a fictional narrative that looks at, if you will, an alternative Hollywood, if things had been different. It also incorporates legends like Rock Hudson and Hattie McDaniel. And she plays a decidedly very important role of a strong woman who is subjugated somewhat to the system and the time in which she lived. And I am so grateful to have you here today, Mira. Um, Mira, can I start with your, your, your early life? Sure. Okay. Um, you were born in Manhattan, but you grew up in New Jersey, and you have uh, a sister and a brother. Your dad was an actor, and your mum was an actor too, although she was willing um, to allow her career, if you will, as, as an actress to take a back seat. As a woman yourself, did it, did it ever strike you as an odd choice that she had made, albeit you would be grateful for having made that decision? Uh, I always used to ask her if she resented having given up her acting career to be our mother, to be a full-time stay-at-home mom. Um, and, you know, she did keep her toe in the acting world. She taught some acting classes when I was a kid, and then she got her drama therapy certificate um, uh, many years later. But uh, she always said no. She 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 wanted to be a wife and mother. That was what fulfilled her. And I never understood it fully until I had my own children, and then I realized that if it were possible to be independently wealthy and just watch them and just be a full-time committed 
100% of the time their mother, that that would actually be sort of a blessing. And that's not that's not the situation I'm in, but I, I certainly understand why she made the choice when she had the luxury to make it. Um, and uh, I appreciate her for, for it, um, even as much as I felt like, oh, how sad she couldn't continue to be an actress. But she didn't really seem to mind. One of the things uh, I've noted is obviously you're very proud of your daddy and you talk about your daddy and, and the acting advice he had given you. Uh, but when you talk about your mother, there is a different expression that comes on your face, favorable as well, I might add, but um, almost like a reserve of uh, a greater um, appreciation than perhaps the world would understand that you have for her. Is, is that accurate or am, or am I reading more into it? Well, I think that my mother is sort of... Um my mother inspired me in terms of her altruism and her uh, her spirit of service, mm-hmm. you know, her strong moral compass that you need to do something with your life that gives back. She went to the and march in Washington, correct? She did. She participated in that as a very young woman. And, you know, um, people could think, oh, yeah, it's just a march. Everybody goes to marches. But not at that time. Mm. Not at that time was it that common for, you know, white young women to go and wholeheartedly throw themselves into the civil rights cause. And, and, you know, it was, it was a special strong thing to do. And I think really indicated her character and her sense of justice and fairness. And, um, you know, she was a volunteer, uh, when I was a kid for something called helpline, which is the Norman Vincent Peale suicide, uh, prevention hotline. Yes. And she would, talk people off of ledges and she would come home and tell us about it. She would talk about her day and how there had been a young man that had wanted to take his life. And she spent three hours convincing him to, to fight another day and to, to seek help and to comfort him. And, you know, I was always very impressed by that. And I felt like that, that had a profound influence on me in terms of the direction of my life. And, you know, I am an actress, but I'm also I've been an activist for many years and an advocate, and I have, since 2009, been a goodwill ambassador for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime on Human Trafficking, and that has been a huge part of my life and a really satisfying part of my life. And and then with the Me Too movement, I also became, uh, you know, an active member of that and uh, have been able to be part of the passage and enacting into law of 10 new laws that relate to sexual harassment violence, rape. And, you know, those things, those things are kind of the spiritual sustenance for me that like, you know, I love entertaining people. I love moving people's hearts or making them think with my performances, but I also love somehow being a participant member of this generation that is, is trying to change the status quo and give people a better shot at a fairer, safer life. So you know, my mom has an enormous amount to do in terms of my inspiration and my kind of uh, role model for all of that. I only ask this because you were born in Manhattan, but uh, the Reverend Norman Vincent Peale used to have a, a marble collegiate church, I think it was called, in Manhattan. Did you, did your family attend that? Uh, we didn't. We used to go to the Episcopal Church in Tenafly, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was called Church of the Atonement, yes, and that's where we went. And as an adult, I'm, I still am an Episcopalian and, and have this marvelous uh, minister who just just retired, and I wish she hadn't. Her name is Reverend Susan Klein, and she's just a really inspirational um, spiritual leader and thinker and brilliant mind. And 
Um, she married us. She's actually my godmother because I got baptized again as an adult, and I just you know think the world of her, and, and um, yeah, my faith means a lot to me. If you don't mind me asking, uh, because I'm honoring your, your faith and the fact that it means a lot to you, you got baptized again. I, I, I know of other people that have done that. Um, what prompted you to want to get baptized again? Was it a greater appreciation of what Christianity meant? Uh, well, I think it was it was also questioning the 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 hundred percent validity of the first baptism, which was done by my parents at our house, and um, as as Reverend Klein she called it a, ba- a bathtub baptism. Um, but we were baptizing our own children, mm-hmm. and at the time, I I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure whether I've ever really officially been baptized. And she said, well, you might as well do it again, and. Um, you know, I think as an adult, my faith has grown more and more important to me. Mm-hmm. And I think as a child, you know, as a teenager, I was much more rebellious about it. And, you know, questions I had would make me sort of distance myself a little bit from my faith, whereas now I feel like questions are a big part of faith. Yes, I think they, doubt and questioning yes. is, is all part of, of actually getting closer and closer to to God and the divine and, and, and you know, true you know, deep knowledge, and that you you can't turn off your questioning mind. It's a good thing to have it. Um, yes. So so, and then you know, she said, "Well, who will be your godparents?" And I was like, "Well, I I don't know. I mean, I have my my childhood godparents are my aunt and uncle, um, but uh, they're not here. They're across the country." And she was like, "Well, how about I be your godmother?" And and that has turned out to be a fantastic relationship because I really lean on her for a lot of things in my life now. Um, so yeah. Kind of like that. It's it's so encouraging to hear somebody um, not reticent to talk about their their spiritual life and their faith and uh, their Christian perspective. It, one of the things that strikes me is your earnestness. Um, uh, there is an absolute, complete earnestness in what you say, um, and yet you can assume the roles of being. You know, obviously, the requirement of of an actress is to to be able to be other than you are. Your dad was very instrumental in helping you in the early days, and he had so much somewhat of a professional fatherly pride. You you spoke about the fact that you were in a, a little play as a child and about eight, and your daddy said, well, I want you to know how to, to cry. So go up the staircase, think of something sad, and come back when you're, when you're crying, and then play your little role now before me. Was that incredibly instrumental to have a dad being able to coach you like that? I think so. I mean, I can't really imagine going it without him. Like, you know, I, I, I think I definitely had a, a leg up on um, burning those neural pathways to accessing my sadness or my <laughs> my emotions that other adult actors, you know, not having been trained to do that as children <laughs> wouldn't have. Um, not sure it's the healthiest thing. I, I feel like I can cry very, very easily. Um it's it, you know when I started off as an actress in film, it was uh, it was harder to know whether I would have that repeatability. Whether on take fifty seven, I would still be able to come up you know crying organically. But now I think I could cry for two days straight, um, and and that's just the way my brain and heart work now. Well, speaking of tears, um, you brought me to tears. Uh, I was watching more than a couple of interviews, to say the least. But the one where you described what you went through as a young girl at 16 on an audition. And I, I would like, if you're willing to do it, like to have you describe that because I thought it was incredibly poignant about the 
lack of assuredness that young ladies have about who they are in a male-dominated society. Would you mind sharing that? Sure. When I was 16, one of my first auditions was for a horror movie. And I went in and I, I really didn't like the script. I found mm. it disgusting. And I, you know, it had not one but two nude shower scenes, uh, which I was just like, okay, we're going to rip off Psycho twice, but in a more sleazy way. Um, but, you know, I at that point, you know, we, who knew what was going to end up in the cut and maybe we would be able to negotiate, blah, blah, blah. So I did the audition and I was supposed to be frightened by this killer and the casting director tied me to a chair and then at a certain point gagged me and then, you know, really sort of roughed me up. And at the end, he's like, oh, great, great job. You were really frightened. That was, that was great. And then as he untied me, um, and took this thing out of my mouth, he said, sorry for the prophylactic. And he had actually used the condom that he had in a, in a, in his shirt pocket to, to gag me. And I being sort of, you know, young and not mm. having ever seen a, a, an unpapped condom before, I uh, did not know what it was. And, but I found it kind of horrific and thinking back on it mm. now, but at the time, you know, I just felt like I was supposed to be game and up for anything as an actor, you know, ready for my art. And, you know, they want me to be frightened. So, okay, here I am, <clears throat> you know, being frightened for my art. And um, now I think of it as just incredibly inappropriate. Like, that's nuts. Like, first yes. of all, what was he even doing with a condom in his pocket at an audition right. with a 16-year-old? That That's just crazy. Um, but the fact that he would actually use that, I mean, if he was preparing to do an audition why would he not bring a handkerchief or something like, you know, if he, if he knew that he was going to try and bind me, I, I, I don't know. The whole thing is crazy. Um, but I didn't tell I didn't tell my dad, um, because I just thought this was what I was expected to do as an actor. And I really didn't think clearly about boundaries being crossed or that, wait a second, that was kind of abusive physically to me. Cause I came home with some bruises on my arms from it. And uh, I just thought, well, I really went, you know, I really went for it, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, that's kind of the way that the industry tells young hopefuls that they have to be up for anything in order to get a part. And then ultimately, I was offered the part. And upon really considering everything and understanding that the nudity was mandatory, I was like, no, I can't do this. And the director was irate. He said, you know, the actresses would give their right arm for this kind of part. This is an incredible part. What are you doing? And then I, I think I said that, you know, my, my religion doesn't allow me to do it. I yes, think that's what I yeah. said. Um, but it was so lurid and disgusting. It really was a kind of a gross, um, yeah, I just thought it was a disgusting film. And, uh, and he was so shocked that I wouldn't do it. But, you know, at that point I still had my, my principles, even though, the audition scene, I didn't, I didn't have the, I didn't have the kind of interior warning signal that should have said, Oh, I'm sorry. You can't do that. I'm sorry. Don't touch me, please. I'm sorry. Don't put anything in my mouth. Like I didn't have, I didn't have that internal sentry going then. I think the insidious thing about these encounters that women go through, 
um, is there is, if you will, what I would describe as a ricochet effect. For instance, you've gone through this ordeal. You're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to, in point of fact, prove your mettle, if you will. Uh, I'm strong. I can do this. I'm, I, I can deliver. And then afterwards, there is the aftermath of the realization of what you've been through. You went through something similar. Um, you were on a set and uh, you were supposed to take a gym clothing off and you would have normally had a bra anyway and the director says no take that off and you say no no I, I'm, I'm, this is how I would do it and then you point out that you have a clause in your contract that says no topless or frontal nudity and he says all right if you don't do it you're fired and um, you have tremendous pressure as a young actress at that point you've got um, people representing you you've got an agent you've got a casting director you've got all these people supposedly believing in you and because of that you want to well not disappoint but at the same time you're ultimately disappointing yourself and that is the insidious part and, it, and it's like rape there's not only the, the rape aspect but there's a continual series of aftermaths that women go through in relation to this so how did you work through, and I would presume, if I were in your shoes, that I would have um, residual anger about what had happened and, and, and not to blame you or re-victimize it, but even towards oneself, like, <clears throat> why didn't I realize I don't have to do that? And you understand yourself at 16 and you, you're talking to your former self, but how did you work through? Because before we get to Harvey Weinstein, this is perpetual. Uh, girls on college campuses, uh, salespeople, real estate agents, they, 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 they find themselves in a compromised position. And then they get into this self-blame thing. How, how do you avoid that? Um, I, I, I think that we're in a new era now, which is looking at everything very differently. I think that women have been conditioned and, and any sort of sexual inappropriateness victim throughout the ages has been conditioned to see it as somehow their fault and to internalize it all and try and then cover it up and scar it over um, and not deal with it and not make it everyone else's problem because somehow then the aspersion would be cast on them. Um, somehow then they become the the problem, the dirty one, the damaged goods, the, you know, so, mm -hmm. so I, I think that this is, it's not just a female thing. It's an anyone thing who's been a victim. And uh, look, I'm still coming to grips with it all. I'm, for the first time, you know, in many, many years, kind of looking at all these things square on. And, uh, and it's funny because I feel like for years I lived in a kind of denial and, and kind of, as I said, sort of scarred it over. There was a, there was a, a smooth surface over the hurts. And once the Me Too movement happened and and once I spoke to Ronan Farrow and gave my story about Harvey Weinstein and then, then was public about other sexual violence episodes in my life, um, those those pieces of scar tissue just were ripped right off. And I, uh, I kind of fell into this pit of, of re-traumatization that I didn't expect and uh, I don't think my family expected, I don't think my husband expected. And um, it's very difficult. And so I think that I'm no expert on how to correctly deal with trauma. Like, I'm just figuring out as I go along right now. Um, but I definitely think it would have been a lot better if at that time I was armed with what I know now 
mm-hmm. and with the prevailing attitudes that it's never the victim's fault and that there is help to be sought out and that to be quiet only only serves the predators, not you, even though it's hard to come forward. It's embarrassing to come forward. It's triggering to come forward. But, um, you know, I, I have found a lot of solidarity um, in the community of other people in the Me Too movement, of the Time's Up organization. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of great stuff together to make it better for people in those circumstances to try and root out this kind of institutionalized behavior, this old boy network that believes that they have the right to impose upon less powerful people uh, just because they can. We're trying to make it that they can't and that there are safeties and, and protections in place and that there are networks to help people once that they do come forward. Um, but, you know, it's all a work in progress, as we all are. You know, but the movement is a work in progress. The response is a work in progress. Um, I just hope that all of this is, I I do believe it's not for naught. I do believe Mm -hmm. that there is a sea change is starting to be felt, which might make it possible for later generations to experience less of this horror. Almost definitely. And you certainly are are a cardinal voice uh, in, in that regard. You are brilliant. That is not an exaggeration. Um, you had the option of going to two Ivy League universities, uh, probably, I presume, if you had applied even more. But you had a choice between I think Harvard. I got into, I got into four. I, well, I, no, let's see. I, I, I got into Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia. Um, did I apply to any others? I'm not sure. Uh, I think I think then my three others were smaller schools. But well, I'm yeah. sure if you applied to Stanford, you would have got in there too. <laughs> so you you decided you elected to go to to, to Harvard, and um, the easy choice would have probably have been to go to New Haven to Yale. Um, I'm struck with a memory right now of Sigourney Weaver saying that she went um, to study drama at Yale and uh, the only helpful class she ever had really, she said, was movement in uh, Yale repertory and drama. But you go to Harvard and you don't go uh, the expected route. You have a uh, very strong sense of interest and curiosity about China. I nearly began the interview with the pathetic Ni Hao Ma uh, and uh, because my wife and I, we lived in San Francisco and our son went to a Chinese school for a number of years. But um, you were quite enchanted and you had this uh, in- incredible ability to adapt. Um, you're in- at the core, you were an extremely strong person and a rather adventurous to say the least. And so you went to China and while you were there, of all things, you were involved with music productions, uh, Western-style music, and as you've described yourself, for w- at one point, somebody wanted you almost to be the inversion of Yoko Ono, in other words, a, a non-Asian in an Asian band. Tell me about those years. Well, that was when I was in China, and I was taking a semester off, um, and I became friends with a young woman named Ning Ying, who was the third AD, one of the third ADs for... Uh, Bernardo Bertolucci when he did The Last Emperor. Um, and she was developing a story which was supposed to be like a Chinese Beatles, and then there's a white girlfriend. Sort of, the, you know, not that Yoko Ono, was, she wasn't Chinese, but um, right. yes. but just this idea of the, the foreigner um, kind of breaking up the band kind of thing. And and I don't know that she ever made that movie, something she was interested in me doing. And if I had gone back to China after Tiananmen Square happened then maybe if if Tiananmen Square had not happened, I would have gone back. That was my plan. As soon as I was going to finish school, I was going to go back and work 
perhaps teaching English again, maybe in the provinces, maybe learn a different dialect because I spoke Mandarin, or maybe I would go back to Beijing where all of my friends were. Um, but then Tiananmen Square happened, so none of us who were involved with China at that point went back because we didn't want to endanger our friends because, you know, you, you wouldn't have been allowed to, to be friends with a foreigner after that happened for a while. You would have been considered to be a very dangerous influence, and they could be in trouble for it. Um, and we didn't want to express that it was business as usual. We wanted to express our, our loud moral condemnation of what had happened. Um, and so my life kind of shifted back towards the States um, after that, back towards acting. Um, but in college, yeah, I mean, I did so many things. The thing is, I knew I wanted to be an actor going into Harvard. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to use those four years to learn all about everything else. I, I just wanted to really just revel in the luxury of being able to get a great education. And uh, yes, if I had wanted to just go straight acting, not much else, I would have either just gone straight to New York and just gone to acting class, or I would have gone to Yale. But I wanted to get a little further away from home. Um, you know, I, I wanted to do something else besides study acting. So Cambridge so, was it. Uh, so I just, I just loved Harvard. I loved the yeah. way it felt. I loved the international independence of it. It's the, it's the most, I mean, for me of the campuses I visited, um, it felt so independence fostering. It felt like you really had to kind of make your way there. And that's what I wanted. I didn't want mother Yale. I didn't want Columbia, which was literally right across the river from where we lived. I wanted something where I'd have to develop myself into more of my own person. Um, but I loved every second of it. I had wonderful roommates. I, you know, I sang with an acapella group that we founded our freshman year, which is still going strong today, called the Veritones, which was so much fun. And just, just, you know, just a classical collegiate ex- experience that you really don't get anywhere else. Um, I rode crew for a year. We won our division of the Eastern Sprints. I mean, we were novice crew, but our boat still won our division. Um, we, I, I took a photography course that developed this lifelong passion for photography. Mm. Um, and then I, you know, I, I just loved, I loved China and it was one of the only majors that allowed you to be very interdisciplinary in what you studied. Like anything counted as long as it pertained to East Asia, you could do like the politics of the Vietnam war or, uh, Japanese Shinto Buddhism or, you know, ancient Chinese archeology span or, you know, Tang dynasty poetry, all of that counted. And then, you know, as a senior, you had to write a thesis, and I ended up writing one about racial conflict, which, you know, is really more of like a sociology, anthropology topic, mm, but yes. but I kind of found it occurring there, and I didn't understand it because there was no history of Chinese and African students living together. There was no, there was no real connection between China and Africa for millennia, really, except for a little bit of trading on the Silk Road, and yet there were these sort of viral outbreaks of racial tension while I was there between Chinese and African students. And I, I, you know, upon researching it, found that they had been there from the beginning of this program started in the late fifties to offer free graduate educations to students from Africa and the rest of the third world as part of like a Maoist encadreization of the third world to make a united front of third world countries along, alongside mainland China. And, uh, and from almost the very beginning of the program, there were these like violent incidences, these clashes. And uh, a young gentleman named John Heavy, I believe, ATVI, wrote a book in the 50s called An African Student in China that documented his experiences of that. So I just wanted to get to the bottom of 
why racism was occurring there, both in a general sense, because I really wanted to understand racism, but also in a cultural specific sense. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. I'm Ken Rudin. George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama, was campaigning for president in 1972 when he was shot multiple times in an assassination attempt. His son remembers that horrific day. And when he hit the ground, he told me, he said, I closed my eyes for about 20 seconds. And I pretended as though I was dead because I didn't know if there was a second gunman. The George Wallace you may not have known this week on Ken Rudin's Political Junkie. Friday afternoon at 1 on WHRV. Last week on Wait, Wait, we tackled the most important issue in American jurisprudence. Who flushed a toilet during Supreme Court oral arguments? Was this a sitting Supreme Court justice or a standing Supreme Court justice? (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Put your seat down and make yourself comfortable as you listen to this week's News Quiz with special guest figure skater Adam Rippon. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Saturday at 11 on 89.5 WHRV Public Media serving Eastern Virginia. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and it is my utter delight to have Mira Savino as my guest. Uh, Her latest project is Ryan Murphy's new Netflix limited series, which means seven episodes, called Hollywood, which is an example really of, well, posing the question, what if there had been an alternative Hollywood than the way things evolved, going back from the late 30s, the 40s, into the 50s, into the present day. In regard to that, I, I, you know, we're always aware of uh, certainly Hattie McDaniel. Everyone knows Paul Robeson. Um, fewer people know about Clarence Muse. Here's a man who is uh, obviously African-American, has a law degree, starts a theater, uh, writes himself, a brilliant actor. Uh, and there are other people on the horizon who who emerge. Um, women in general are repressed and um, used as as a commodity for attraction and uh, uh, manipulative purposes. But there are strong women. Uh, Joan Crawford uh, served uh, via her husband on the board of Pepsi, and somebody like Lucille Ball, um, who was utterly brilliant. We had Carol Burnett on the show a few weeks ago, and we were talking about Lucille Ball. And, um, you know, here, here's a lady who is responsible for at least two major franchises, Mission Impossible, uh, through Desilu Productions and uh, also Star Trek. Um, but these examples are few and far between. In relation to your character that you are playing, um, there's some wonderful vignettes in the series. Can I tell you my favorite scene of the entire sure. thing that you're involved with? Okay. Yeah. It's probably something that, uh, frankly, a lot of people would overlook because it's not high-tension drama, but it is superb. It is a scene when you are with Patty Lapoon and you have already disclosed to her that you have had an affair with her husband 
and uh, she doesn't seem particularly shocked. But now you are, are called to another meeting in what looks to be either a commissary of the studio. And you are sitting down and she is about to offer you an alternative. And you cannot believe, and there's many beats that you have to hit in this theatrically in a short period of time. You cannot believe that the woman is being magnanimous and kind and offering you a part. And and you're very extremely, your character's vulnerable, acknowledging that she doesn't even know what the production's about. Hello, so nice Lovely. to see you. That's it. Yes, thank you, Avis, for inviting me here. Jean? Well, well, is it good news or bad news? <laughs> I, I had heard through the grapevine that I might be up for a, a nice part in Peg, and that now it's Meg. Jean, you know I think the world of you, which is why I wanted to tell you this personally. Oh, God, yes, it's, it's bad news. We were considering you for a role in Meg, but we're going in a different direction. Jean, you're just not right for that particular role. All right. Well, I appreciate you letting me know. All right. That's it? You're not going to put up a fight? What would you have me say? Avis, cast me or I'll kill myself? I mean, this is your studio. You can cast whoever you want. I I'm just lucky to still be on contract. Well, that's my point. Please sit down. You're making me nervous. Avis and I have thought a lot about you, Jean. I know you feel neglected. You're a great actress. You're respected all across town, but you've never really broken through. And here you are, under contract, just spinning your wheels. So you're going to fire me? No. I'm giving you a picture. A role that will finally do you justice and take you to that next level. A juicy role that could win you the Oscar. Is, is this some kind of trick? No. It's not? Is it Helen Keller? No. How would you like to play Lee Miller in the Lee Miller biography? Yes. <laughs> I actually don't know who she is. Well, she was one of Man Ray's models. Then she became a war photographer. Thank you. I'm so moved that you would do such a thing for me. That you would see me and what I might be able to do. Thank you. Um, for me, that was the most poignant moment and perhaps you would disagree with me. I don't know. No, that's my favorite scene that I have. That that's my my favorite scene of my character in the show. Absolutely. How did you prepare it, it, for that? Well, I mean, I'd been playing her all that way. I mean, sort of consecutively. So uh, I knew what she had already been through. I knew how guilty she felt about, um, you know, the compromising position she found herself in with. Ace Amberg as he had a stroke while they were having, you know, an illicit yes. affair. Yeah. And then how, you know, she felt it was incumbent upon her to tell Avis and apologize and offer to resign her from her contract at Warner, or not Warner Brothers, my God, uh, Ace Pictures. And uh, and instead, you know, uh, Patty Lapone has said, no, you can stay. It would be hypocritical of me because, you know, Patty's been having all of these affairs with these young actors mm -hmm. and their marriage has really been on the rocks for a long time. Um, but it was still unbelievably magnanimous of her to forgive her. Mm. But Jean, my character, kind of feels like, uh, I don't know how long this is going to last. Who knows when the other shoe is going to drop? Yes. And um, there was a line in the original script, which I don't think is there anymore, when they're discussing whether or not to give 
Gene a role in the Meg movie. Mm. And one of them, and I think it's Holland, who says, no, I don't think Jean is right for this. She has such a hopeful quality. <laughs> and, and, and they gave it to the sort of darker Anna Mae Wong, who's, who's, you know, been through the fire and has been, you know, mm. um, kind of forged by it, but a, but a little bit sad, you know. And, uh, and so I come into the room and I'm excited because I'm really hoping that I might get a part in this. But I'm also very aware that the hatchet could fall in any time and that really my punishment for what I've done might still be coming. You know, the fact that I did have this affair with Aces. Yes. You know, yes. with Ace, with Avis's, Avis's husband. So many A's. And, uh, <laughs> and so I come in there and, you know, I'm just being her as she is. And uh, I think it's very funny when she jumps up and she says, well, what do you want me to say, that I'm going to kill myself if you don't give me this part? Because you kind of feel like, yeah, she might do that. <laughs> she might kill herself. This is, you know, she's sort of being offhand, but the thought has occurred to her. Um, and uh, I, I just love that she's she's not stupid, but no. she's not she's not fully in command of everything either. Right. You know, she's yes. buffeted about by life a little bit. Yeah. And she is so blown away when Holland and Avis tell her that they've actually crafted an opportunity for her to play this leading role of this Lee Miller character, this yes. famous war photographer who was there when the camps were liberated at the end of World War II. And she she's just stunned by their generosity. And it just melted my heart and, you know, everything was pretty authentically played. I mean, they, you know, being where the character was, it just, you know, it, it, it all kind of flowed and it all just happened organically. Well, you hit so many different points, but um, from my observation, I love acting, I should confess to that. And uh, looking at Patti Lupone, she's extremely generous and um, uh, allows it to, I don't use the overworked term organic, but uh, it, she just allows the, the scene to breathe and to happen. The, the thing I don't like, and, and you, you know, nothing against certainly uh, Ryan Murphy, but uh, I, I, it's my opinion, there's too much music uh, which undermines what you do so aptly and so well. Uh, do you sometimes feel that there is too much saturation of music? I mean, you know, beyond the obvious with violins, you didn't need it. And I know I'm not saying that you felt you needed it, but it seemed to me that the scene would have been um, inobtrusive with, with, with the music absent. Do you as an actress sometimes say, would you let us do our stuff? We don't need additional embellishment musically. How do you feel about that? You know, I honestly didn't notice it in this at all. Uh, so I didn't even remember that there was music playing in that scene. Um, so I, I, you know, I can't speak to this production about that. There have mm -hmm. definitely been times in my career where I've seen a final cut of a movie um, where there was very loud music played over a very emotional scene. And then I was like, oh, no, oh, no. Yes. Yeah. Um, but... But that was not this. I didn't even notice it in this, so I'm I'm not I, I can't comment to your feelings about this one. Sure. Um, well, yeah. let's let's play connections. Um, you when you were at Harvard, you directed a play after the fall, uh, yes. which is obviously Arthur Miller. I had the pleasure of meeting Arthur Miller years ago. Uh, obviously, Arthur Miller was married to Marilyn Monroe, and you have a strong affinity. Uh, with Marilyn Monroe, uh, you played uh, Marilyn, whereas Ashley Judge played Norma Jean in a production back in 1996. And um, 
You had the, the greatest honor by her former husband, Arthur Miller, telling you that you did an absolutely superb understanding and presentation of who Marilyn was. And moreover, um, you also got to wear and don her dress. Yes, I did. Um, yeah, I got that message through Winona Ryder, who was working with Arthur Miller at the time. And after he saw Norma Jean Marilyn, he said, who is that girl? How did she understand Marilyn's pain? Mm. Which I, I thought was one of the best compliments I'd ever gotten. Yes. Um, and it meant a lot to me because when I did Norma Jean and Marilyn, I felt so overwhelmed by the dauntingness of it. And at one point, I almost had a little <laughs> nervous breakdown when I was in the trailer preparing for a scene where I was wearing her actual dress um, with the, the sort of white silk halter top with the cherries on it from The Misfits. And I remember being like, oh, my God, what am I doing? How could I actually dare to play Marilyn Monroe? I could never be as beautiful or as special or as enchanting or, you know, all of her qualities. Like, who do I think I am? And then this thing washed over me, and I was like, well, it's okay. You can't be her. No one can ever be her. There was yes. only one her. So what this is, is this, this is your chance to try and show the world what you understand about her, what you think you understand about her, your, your homage to her. And that really let me off the hook. And then for him to say that about her, I thought, you know, and, and about the pain. And, and like, I was like, oh, it, it did exactly what I hoped it would do. Like it shared what I thought I saw about her. And and it, it struck home with the man who would know it more than anyone. I mean, he wrote after the fall as an entire sort of apologia for his relationship with her, for the way he treated her. Um, and I had seen after the fall when I was uh, a teenager in New York with Frank Langella playing him and yes. Diane Weist playing her. Yes. And Diane Weist was, I mean, it wasn't hers. Like, I think the character's called Maggie, but she's a singer instead of an actress. But she was so extraordinary in it. And, you know, we don't usually think of Diane Weist as being super vulnerable and sexual and, and uh, you know, sort of not strong. Um you know, her later roles were so powerful and, you know, full of, you know, sort of confidence in a way. Um, but she did such an incredible job with the vulnerability of the character that I just fell in love with the play and with all the things it grappled with. And so I really wanted to direct it. And then, and I did. Um, so I just, I, for a long time, I had a real connection with Marilyn Monroe from the time I was a teenager, because, you know, I grew up, my mom, you know, is, is a very religious person and did kind of, hit the gong very loudly about sort of sin and guilt and always kind of made it seem, you know, that the, the sexual world was fraught with judgment and, and you were a bad person to even let your mind go there kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And when I was introduced to Marilyn Monroe and just saw her innocence, even though she was completely sexual and sexy, like it sort of made me feel hope that sexuality could be innocent and good instead of evil and, you know, dark. Right. A delightful, beguiling this, combination. Yeah, the, that there was this light to it and that it wasn't something you had to be guilty about and that she embodied this sort of childlike innocence. And, you know, granted, we all know now that she was a victim of child, childhood sexual abuse. Yes. So maybe yes. there's something more sinister in the fact that her, her adult persona was so connected to a sort of baby-like innocence, but also very sexual. But granted, she's an adult woman then. So, you know, it's, it's hard to unlock the whole mystery. But 
But for me, it meant a lot to find a figure like that when I was a 16-year-old girl and, you know, was feeling sort of self-hatred for being a person with any sort of sexual feelings, because clearly we all have them. Um, But then here was this shining beacon of like a kind of an undeniable goodness and lovability that was Marilyn. And so getting to play her and getting to to inhabit her world and research her, and uh, it was just a true joy as well as a as well as a sad experience because I had to play her death and I had to play her being hospitalized and given electric shock therapy and all of that. But it was really a magnificent experience to have as a young actress, really, really wonderful. I was struck by your interest in her voice because I've had it too. And um, one of the best things you can do, I think, is on YouTube you can access the old look interviews that she did relatively um, close to the end uh, of her life, just in one case, I think a matter of a few weeks. And you described, and I think it's absolutely completely bang on, that she did have this high breathy voice, but at times it could go a tad low, um, which you hear in audio interviews, but you weren't. You couldn't able see because yeah. when she was on, when she, when she was being the full stop Marilyn Monroe bombshell, she kind of kept it that lighter range, um, but. When uh, I, I went to the Museum of Television and Radio in Beverly Hills and listened to all of her audio interviews, mm. and in those, she was more relaxed, and the, the register would range from that high, breathy thing down to a much lower, more sort of the way most adults kind of can, can kind of live lower in their, their vocal cords like that, you know. And so it would kind of go up and down, and I thought, oh, how interesting. You know, so I, I really tried to do an awful lot of voice work with, you know, trying to get her patois just down right and do all of her strange plosives. And she had such a strange, idiosyncratic way of saying certain things like no one else. And then I also um, used, and this is the only time I've done this because it's one of the only times I've ever played a, a visually historic person, but I would watch her act. I would set the camera up like facing me while I would watch a videotape of her in like River with No Return, uh, of No Return and other other of her shows, Bus Stop. And, and I would tape record myself, videotape myself, saying her lines, moving my face the way she did when she would speak. And then I would do it over and over again until they looked the same and I could play them at the same time. And I, I was doing the same thing as her. You know, you have to get to the point where you work hard enough that it becomes effortless. The harder you work, the more effortless the final result is. And I think that's true of any of any art or, or athleticism. You know, if you look at dancers, if you look at gymnasts, like it kind of looks like it's not that hard when they're doing it because they've worked so hard yes, to get to yes. that place. And anyone who thinks that acting isn't the same, uh, especially when you have to do this very specific character work that people have a reference to, doesn't really understand the craft. I am totally entranced with your life because there's a myriad of different uh, slices of experiences that you've had, one of which was traveling with the Brothers Levy. And Mm -hmm. you tried to educate (laughs) junior high school children across America uh, to give them an opportunity to have their own voice, to have an appreciation for theater and what have you. Now, we are speaking with a woman who has stayed at the Chateau Maman, but also has stayed at the West Pico Christian Men's Shelter, along <laughs> with a palmetto bug. Uh, and, and, some, un, and some heretofore and shall forever remain unknown large creature. Uh, yeah. 
uh, that was one of the, you know, in this Street Side Stories, which was the program of which you speak, uh, we were traveling across the United States, stopping in junior high schools every week, working with a specific school every week, and trying to get all the kids there to write their own play together and then perform it for the school and get people of all all tracks, like not just the honors track, but some of the ones that you would have been in the 80s called slow learners mm, or, you yes, know, and yeah, just, yeah. Uh, you know, just whatever whatever pigeonholes they were stuffed into. And, and one of the wonderful things I found was like, wow, every kid has like creative genius. Like every kid, when you, they put pen to paper and start writing something like a poem about themselves, like stuff comes out that's mind blowing. And, you know, there was really no difference in the quality between the ones who were advanced and the ones who some of the teachers would just stick into a room for an hour with worksheets rather than actually try and reach them. And uh, it was it was really an effort, like the program was really sort of meant to combat like the rash of, you know, television washing, which was mm-hmm. my generation. I think now we have the same thing, but it's just screens. It's just any kind of screen. It's yes. the phone, it's the computer, it's the you know, Xbox, it's, it's TV. And just to try and get kids to be sort of more generative and do something that kind of brought them out of themselves and to create literature and create performance rather than just sit back and be passively imbibing it. But on the weekends on this trip, um, the Brothers Levy would, would ride across the country. They would do 100 miles. They'd call it a century. And then wherever we landed after 100 miles were done would be where we would stay that night. And we never had prearranged housing on weekends, but it was, it was you know, a, a little nonprofit, had no money. We had no budget to stay in hotels. So we had to kind of sing for our supper and find places to sleep. And one time we slept on a jail cell floor, and the the sheriffs locked us up for the night and then woke us up. One time we slept on a hospital cafeteria floor. And now with my germ phobia, I cannot (sighs) believe we did that. I cannot believe we did that. But, you know, you're, you're... you're 22, you're, you're up for anything, and, you know, okay, i got a sleeping bag, here we go. <laughs> um, but one of these nights, the only place to sleep seemed to be this, um, this place called the West Pico Christian Men's Shelter, or Men's Home or something. And, and we walked in, and they had us fill out little forms about what our religious affiliations were, and we had to check either... Baptist or Roman, <laughs> and I, I just put like other, you know, like yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And we went in, and they were very nice, and they said that we could sleep there that night. And they had some other residents there. And about eight thirty, they were like, um, or eight o'clock, they were like, "Oh well, would you like to take a shower?" And I was like, "Oh, that's okay, thank you." And then like another fifteen minutes go by. Would you like to take a shower? Um, no, I'm good. Actually, you have to. It's house rules. So I was like, okay. So I go into the bathroom lock the door, get ready to step into the tub with the, you know, shower curtain around it. It's it's like a house, like somebody's home, you know. Mm -hmm. And as I'm about to step into the tub, there's the most giant roach you've ever seen. It was about six inches long. And I think I screamed, you know, very briefly and then, and then just uh, was horrified. It was, you know, a palmetto bug, and I think they can fly, actually. I mean, it was yeah, just gigantic. You know, they call them palmetto bugs. Floridians love to do that, but what they really are is just cockroaches on steroids. Yeah, cockroaches, right. And so so I just, I just stuck my head underneath the water and then, you know, dried off and said I'd take it a shower because I, I, I was not going to share that tub with that, that creature. And although I can't kill, I can't kill bugs. I can't, can't do it. 
uh, a couple of times in my first New York apartment, I killed a couple of roaches, and one of them made this terrible screeching sound, mm. and uh, and I never got over it. So I, I just I always put bugs outside. When I find bugs, I put them outside. The only kind of bugs I can kill are like um, mosquitoes and fleas and ticks. You know, I take ticks yeah, off. Yeah, there's of my a dogs, technique where you yeah. can put a glass over a bug if you catch it, and then slide a bit of cardboard yeah, underneath always. it, and then take That's it out. Thing. And it's a thing to yep. do. Mira, there is no question in my mind that you have a life mission and that you are fulfilling it. Uh, I think you are the most able type of candidate to be called to that, if you will, uh, service. You are sincere, genuine, not affected, brilliant, intelligent, with the right compass facing in the correct direction, inclusive, wanting to rectify and to correct injustice. Well, that's awfully sweet of you. Um, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I, I, I try, I try my best to do what I can and to follow whatever inner call I have. Well, you're fulfilling it. And Mira Savino, thank you very much for your generosity and your kindness and for being a part of Watching America today. You've touched me and our listeners. Thank you so much. This has been a, a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Take care and God bless. You too. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.